the table for today's message. So let me ask you a question. Have you experienced an event, a happening, a crisis, a celebration? And what happened was so unexpected, it it shocked you. I mean, you can't believe it happened, but it, it did happen. Maybe, you know, from a national standpoint, it's something like 9-11 when the, the Twin Towers went down. If you're a Twins fan, maybe it was the last time the Twins won the World Series in Game 7 in 91. Maybe it was this summer with the riots in the cities or this past January when our capital was overrun. Maybe it was a personal thing, a breakup. A marriage, a divorce, an accident, a health crisis, a promotion, being let go from a job. But whatever it is, it impacted you. It almost shocked you. And you revisit it in your memory. And it's stranger than fiction, but it it really happened. And so today we are in the Gospel of Luke, as we're coming to the conclusion. If you have your Bibles, you may want to open them to chapter 23. And we arrive at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while a number of us may not find the details surprising, because we're familiar with the story, I encourage you to enter in once again to what happened. To allow yourself to be affected. To allow yourself maybe to even be shocked or struck. Because I think as we look deeply in the, into this, we will be struck or, or shocked by the cruelty, the pettiness, the hard-heartedness that is extended towards the Lord Jesus Christ, the only innocent man who ever lived. But more so as we enter into this. I think we will be shocked by the mercy and grace that Jesus extends to those around him even as he suffers and dies. And even if we're just being reminded, I pray that you are struck. I pray that you are shocked. And it continues to change you, to transform you. To remember this moment where God changes all of history and all of eternity for our good. So before we dive in, let me pray and see if God will shock us towards grace today. Lord, we're grateful for your word. And we're grateful for what takes place in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. While it is one, one side sorrowful and shameful, it is also what buys our salvation. And so we are grateful. So Lord, give us grace as we dive into your word to enter into this and prick our hearts, do something in us that we cannot do ourselves through your Holy Spirit. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might say what I should say and not what I should not. But give us eyes to see you for who you really are. 
And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So if you were here with us last week, we saw Jesus brought to trial before Herod, excuse me, before Pilate, and then Herod, and then back to Pilate. We saw that the, the rulers of the Sanhedrin, they charged Jesus with insurrection, with forbidding paying taxes to Caesar, and for claiming to be a king that would rival Caesar. Well, as Herod and Pilate examined Jesus, they found no wrongdoing in him. But in the end, Pilate still gives in to their cries to put Jesus to death, to crucify him. Because he's more interested in keeping the peace than in doing justice. And so, as we talked about last week, last week humanity is incapable of true justice. And that's why we need a Savior. And the Savior is now going to the cross. And He saves us through his suffering. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 26, in chapter 23. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country. And they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. So just in the opening sentence here, the first shock, is that for the believer or the follower of Jesus Christ... Our fate is wrapped up in the fate of our Lord Jesus. The procession to the cross by the Romans from the city of Jerusalem up to Golgotha, Calvary, is one of humiliation, of condemnation, where the cross beam of the cross is strapped to that prisoner to carry through the town, to hear the jeers of the crowd. It is a public way of shaming that person. But Jesus has been so beaten up, has lost so much blood, he's unable to do this. And so the Romans pressed this man, Simon, from Cyrene. And Cyrene is North Africa or Libya, where there was a very healthy Jewish colony there. They pressed him to carry Jesus' cross. Now, Simon was a guy who was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was a pilgrim there for the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, coming into town, and the Romans grabbed him. At the moment, he may have felt inconvenienced or rudely treated. This is not my problem. Why am I being involved in this? He's being drawn into something that perhaps he doesn't consider his own. But I wonder as he carried that cross beam up the hill, at the very end he considers that what he did was actually not an inconvenience, but a privilege. You see, when Jesus calls his disciples, he would say earlier in the, in the Gospel of Luke, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. That's in Luke 9, 23-24. You see, I think there are many followers of Jesus Christ who they don't want to take up 
the cross to follow Jesus. In fact, they're kind of doing all they can to not suffer anything in following Jesus. In fact, sometimes they're a little bit mad at Jesus when suffering comes their way. Whether it's for the cause of Christ or just life's inconvenience. But this is the case for followers of Jesus Christ all over the world. There are many who have to take up their cross, deny themselves and follow Jesus because the world doesn't like Jesus. They don't like him, them following Him. And what happens here in the Gospel, it really is a picture of what it means for the follower of Jesus Christ to pick up their cross and follow Him even unto death. Now for Simon of Cyrene, he gets to the top of the hill, puts down the cross beam, and it's not his death that takes place. It's Jesus's. But it will happen to another Simon, a man named Simon Peter, and it happened to many other followers who would give their lives for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us, we who follow him, I, we live in a pretty safe place here in the United States to follow Jesus. If we suffer, it might be ridicule. It might be a, a work standard where they don't want you to share your faith. It might come one day where we actually have to give up our lives for our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the promise remains if we lose our life for Christ in His kingdom, His gospel. We save it. And you know what? I think in eternity we'll consider that it was a privilege to do so. The shock that our fate is wrapped up in the fate of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, shock number two. Jesus pities the women who pity Him. Pick it up at verse 27. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless, the wombs that have never borne and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, just goes to show that not everyone in the crowd wanted Jesus dead. We saw that last week, that many in the crowd were, were crying out, crucify him. But not everyone. And in this particular case, women of Jerusalem find him to be a sympathetic character. And perhaps fulfilling that of the prophecy of Zechariah 12.10 that says, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves a firstborn. But Jesus' concern throughout this whole ordeal is not for himself, 
not to proclaim his innocence or ask anyone to feel pity for him. In this case, it's for these women who are weeping behind him. But they're not aware of the tragedy that is coming their way and their children's way. That is the judgment that's going to come upon Jerusalem in 70 A.D. A judgment for rejecting God's Messiah. For not responding on the day of his visitation, as Luke 19.42 talks about. It's a day of judgment. Where they're going to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Which are the words of Hosea, chapter 10, verse 8. You know where these words are used again? In Revelation, chapter 6. When it talks about the seals being broken. And the return of the Lamb. And the people who have not responded, being fearful, saying to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. Because they are fearful of the wrath of the Lamb. What an interesting statement. They're fearful of the wrath of the Lamb. What about you and me? Are we like these women where we find Jesus sympathetic? He's a good guy. I like, I like what he said. But to follow him as Lord and Savior and Master, that's, well, that's something entirely different. But he comes claiming to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, to be the King, to be the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to God the Father except through him. He's either who he says he is, or he's not. Jesus is warning those who find Jesus sympathetic, but have not responded to him as King, as Lord. To not do so will find a very shocking ending. The next shock, and this is what resonates with me especially, is how Jesus intercedes for those who persecute and kill him. Let's read on, verse 30, 32 through 34. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came out, to the place called the skull. They crucified him. They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing." And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Again, the procession of shame continues. Jesus is lumped between Two criminals, right? This is the theater that the leaders want. Guilty by association. Look at the criminals he's being marched up with to the place of execution. To a place called the skull. In the Greek, the word is cranium, where we get cranium. In the King James Version, it's called calvary, which is a Latin derivative of skull. 
That's why it's not in your NIV. It's not why it's in your NASB. But in Calvary, I mean, in the, the King, King James Version, it's Calvary. But this is the place where society says, we, this is how we get rid of our, the refuse of our society. And Jesus is nailed to a cross, to a tree. It's a painful, slow, humiliating death. You are stripped of your clothing. And as we saw, the cast lots for Jesus' clothing. And in Jewish eyes, anyone who's nailed to a tree is considered cursed, according to Deuteronomy chapter 21-23. Yet within all of this, Jesus' response to this abuse is, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. If that were me, if that were you, I don't think we'd respond that way. I don't think that's how we would pray at that moment. But this is why Jesus has come to bring forgiveness for his enemies, to those who will deny him, abuse him, beat him, nail him to the cross. Ignore him, rebel against him. This is why Jesus has come. For you and for me. That's what nails him to the cross. His enemies, who he's seeking to reconcile. Romans 5.8, a verse that many of us have memorized, that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, while we're shaking our fists at God, while we're doing our own thing, Christ died for us. In that same chapter in verse 10, he says this, the Apostle Paul says this, for If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? You see, Jesus came to be nailed to that cross in order that we might be forgiven. This week I ordered this replica nail of Jesus' cross. Is it fully authentic? I don't know. But it's big. It's brutal. It's a visceral reminder, reminder of why Jesus had to come and how he responds to the abuse that's heaped upon him. Forgiveness. It shocks me. It's not how I would respond. But it's his response. And as I'm going to pass this around the room, and I'm going to put it in a bag with some Santa wipes, so if you're nervous about passing things on, you can do that. But I want you to take the snail. I want you to hold it. I want you to grip it. I want you to put it in your palm and think about what it was like, what Jesus experienced. I also want you to think about it. It was my 
sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. And let it be a visceral reminder, a shock, if you will, to remind you of the great forgiveness He extended to His enemies, to you and me. Amazing grace it is. The next shock I want to talk about is Jesus' persecutors who seem to continue to hound him even on the cross. Pick it up at verse 35. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The people there... They're spectators. They're to, they're there to see what's going to happen to this this Jesus, this Rabbi, who claims to be the Messiah. The rulers, well, they are there to discredit and denigrate Jesus. They want to do it publicly. They want to take it all the way to the grave, and they say, in essence, to prove yourself Messiah, come on down from the cross, save yourself, Jesus. Of course, they don't expect him to do this. It's mockery. Now that he's nailed to the cross, they believe he's helpless. There's nothing he can do. Save yourself, Jesus. And it doesn't stop there. There's a pile on. Look at verse 36. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. And they offered him wine vinegar. And it's this horrible, bitter drink that has alcohol in it, but it tastes terrible. It's basically saying, this is what happens to criminals. And they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was written a notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. Again, similar. The the guards, they're taunting Jesus to prove that he is the king. That he is the king of the Jews to save himself. They're saying this to the same guy they just heard him pray out loud, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's their response to him. And then dividing his clothes up. And then this sign above his head, this is the king of the Jews. Placed there by the governor, by Pilate. And if you want to read about that, that's in chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. But it's there to mock Jesus. But more so, it's kind of a a poke or an attempt to get back at the Jewish leaders who Pilate feels like they forced his hand to crucify Jesus. He says, so okay, if that's the way it's going to be, fine. We're going to call him the king of the Jews. And in in a political power play, He's going to say, we're crucifying the Romans. We're crucifying your king. And there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus is just being used as a pawn, if you will. But there's some divine irony that's taking place here also. This pagan governor, whether he had wrong beliefs or wrong motives, he actually wrote correctly about who Jesus really was. He really was the king 
of the Jews and is the king of the Jews. So you have the mocking rulers. You have the Roman guards, and now a third joins in. One who is condemned along with Jesus. Verse 39. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Well, save yourself and us. Why not? It's pile on on Jesus' day. Why not have him do it too? This criminal, this societal reprobate, decides he wants to get on the action of mocking Jesus, the innocent Son of God, demanding that he save himself and save him. A man who has lived a life totally in rebellion against God and his word, demanding this. And this is all piling up on Jesus. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 3 says this, Stone is heavy, and sand is a burden. But the provocation of a fool is heavier than them both. Have you ever had an interaction with somebody you know is just a complete fool? Acts in total hypocrisy, and you don't even want to waste your time, and yet they're berating you? Has that ever happened to you? This is what's happening to Jesus. And this must have been the last temptation of Jesus. To come down off the cross. To shut their mouths, their mocking mouths. Their only intent was to humiliate Him. But he doesn't. That shocks me. He stays there on the cross because if he chooses to save his own life, then our souls are forfeit. Then there is no atoning sacrifice for our sins, and we are forever lost. Jesus stayed there and he took it. Because he knew it was the only way for us to be saved. Because he was there to do his Father's will, not his own will. He was not leading with his own ego. He's there to accomplish the Father's will because we as a race could not. We chose to do our own thing. He chose to love us beyond our loveliness. Because we can be pretty ugly. And I'm shocked that Jesus stayed there. But He did. But He did. And then I'm more and more shocked at the mercy and grace that comes at a stroke before midnight. Verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, and we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, for all the putrid conditions of this scene, of this situation, this interaction must have been a breath of fresh air to our Lord. Finally, someone who realized their brokenness, their sinfulness, their need, and his own innocence. And his, and his calling out on Jesus, there's not going to be an opportunity to, to change or repent. There's not going to be an opportunity for him to make things right. Death is minutes away for this thief. Yet somehow, this criminal, this thief, he realizes that this is God's Messiah. That this is the Savior. I don't know how he knows it, but he knows it. And he can't do anything except call on him. Call, he can't do anything except call on the one who is doing something for him right now in offering up his own life to save him. And he receives the grace of the Savior where he says to him, truly I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. Now that word paradise in the, in the Greek means garden. And the reason I'm taking some time to, to focus on this for just a second here is because some theologically believe that that paradise is like a holding place or a purgatory that you go to before you go to heaven. That's not how it's used in this, this passage, nor is it used in the Bible. In the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, in Genesis 8-2, the Garden of Eden is called paradise. And in the New Testament, it clearly points to heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, and Revelation 2-7, if you're interested in that. But this is what's happening. Paradise is restored. The, the gap between God and sinner is removed. And this person is brought back into God's presence. This sinful criminal goes to paradise today at the 11th hour, at 11.59 and 59 seconds. He who was on his way to hell is now in paradise with Jesus. And we may protest and say, well, that's not fair. I mean, here's a guy who lived like the devil his whole life. At the last minute, he calls on Jesus, and he, and he goes to heaven, he goes to paradise. That's not fair. And you're right. And you're wrong. You're right. He doesn't get what he deserves. But nor does anyone who is in Christ. And you're wrong because justice does fall. It doesn't fall on him, it falls on Jesus. He gets the justice that that thief, that you, that I deserve. 
But that's what makes it amazing. That's what makes it shocking. It's what Isaiah was trying to say in his prophecy in Isaiah 53.6. You see, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've decided to do our own thing. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord, that is Yahweh, has laid on him the Messiah, that Lamb of God, the iniquity of us all. I don't know how that strikes you, but it shocks me. I don't know that it shocks me. It's more of a a breath of fresh air. A breath of relief. A breath of, wow. Thank you. Thank you. It points to the gospel, right? It's not what we do. It's what God has done in Christ. And it's the truth of Romans 10.13, the first verse I ever memorized, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All who put their faith in Him, they will be saved. And yeah, it's scandalous. Because you look at some person's life, you say, that person can be forgiven? Yes. That person. Or maybe you're saying, can I be forgiven? Yes, even you can be forgiven. Pastor, you don't know what you've done. (laughs) Yeah, you're right, I don't. But God does. And He saves you. He saves you. And it is the security and the blessing of being in Christ. The beginning words of chapter 8 of Romans There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, shocking, but refreshing all at once. Number six, the shock that creation and the covenant react to Jesus' death. Pick it up at verse 44. Now it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father! Into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. So two physical phenomena take place here, okay? Number one, the sun darkens from 12 o'clock to 3 p.m. It's creation's reaction to what's happening to Jesus. In the the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 31, as he prophesies about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, he talks about how the sun is turned to darkness. And that is illustrating judgment that is coming. And creation is indicating judgment that is now falling on Jesus in our stead. 
We don't get everything that Jesus says from the cross in the, in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to focus on that on Friday. I hope you're going to be here for that. But what is taking effect is creation's reaction to what's happening to Jesus. He has become the target of God's wrath, of God's justice, of God's judgment. That's what's happening, and creation is reacting to it. That's phenomenon number one. Phenomenon number two is the curtain in the temple is ripped into two. And that curtain is this huge, thick temple that was in the holy place, dividing the holy place from the holy of holies, from which behind was the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence, the physical presence of the Lord. That curtain is ripped in two. This is the place where God supposedly dwells on earth. And only one person was allowed in that area once a year, and that was the high priest. And he needed to come with the blood of the sacrifice. An animal that had experienced death, or he would die. God and mankind had been separated from each other because of mankind's rebellion and sin. And when the man and the woman sinned against God, God removed them from the garden. And he put an angel, a cherub there, who had a flashing sword, would kill any, anyone who tried to enter back into the presence of the Lord. Thus, to enter into the presence of the Lord is to come under the sword. That's why the law calls for sacrifices. Death had to take place in order to make propitiation for sinful mankind to enter into God's presence. The high priest, once again, can only enter in one time a year with blood in the Holy of Holies. This law of God called for a curtain to protect and show that there is a definite separation between God and man. But Jesus brings a new covenant. A new covenant that will end this separation. And he brings these two phenomena together. Judgment that comes upon him. And ripping open the separation between God and man and a holy God. And the author of Hebrews explains it this way in what has taken place. Hebrews 10, 19-20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is His body. Jesus rips open and creates an entrance past that separation. Pastor... Teacher Alistair Begg calls it divine vandalism. I call it divine waymaking. And it sends shockwaves into eternity. The last shock I want to focus on today is this. The reaction by the witnesses of Jesus' death. And it starts with a life-hardened centurion. Verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. This Roman officer 
had probably presided over hundreds of crucifixions and deaths. Seeing people cry out, squirm, cry out in agony. And after a while, I'm sure it just hardened him. It just made him insensitive. But now he witnesses this man, Jesus. His prayer for the forgiveness of his killers. The abuse, the mockery he goes through. His grace to his fellow, the thief that's next to him. The darkening of the sun. His loud cry. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now here's what we don't understand sometimes. That most died in crucifixion through asphyxiation, through suffocation. They can't breathe. And at the very end of their death, they're barely gasping for air. There's no way they're going to cry out in a loud voice at the end. But Jesus cries out in a loud cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, the Lord of life, dies on his own terms, committing himself to his Father and what he's going to accomplish. And it impacted this hardened man's heart. It changed how he viewed life and what God was doing. And it caused him to praise God of all things. At the execution of this man, it caused him to praise God. Now we don't know what happens to this centurion in the future, but here's what I want to point out. Jesus greatly affects three centurions in the Scripture. This one here, there's another one in chapter 7 who's in Capernaum who has a, a servant who's sick. And he calls on Jesus and says, hey, Lord, I'm unworthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, in Israel I've not found such faith. But I've got to believe that that healing impacted that man about who Jesus was. And then we get to the book of Acts and a man whose name is Cornelius, who's a centurion in, in um, Capernaum, excuse me, in Caesarea, calls on Peter to share the gospel with him. And he is changed. Here's my point in mentioning all this. Jesus is a Messiah whose salvation reaches beyond Israel. It comes to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And it's about ready to explode within a few months. Now that's shocking. And this man is affected by even the death of Jesus. Verse 48, the crowd. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. This crowd who had come to witness this, maybe with a little bit of voyeurism, to be entertained, to see what was going to happen. They finally realized what this really was. The unjust death of an innocent man. And so they wept by beating their own breasts. But little did they know that God was using it for his redeeming purposes. And last of all, Jesus' followers, verse 49. And all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him, from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. His followers, many of them have come down from Galilee. 
as he'd entered the city earlier that week, now have watched him die. They're in a town that's not their own. They're from Galilee. They're considered outsiders. And they watch from a distance because they're, they're still not sure if it's safe to be near Jesus even if it's His dead body. But He has changed their lives. Released some of them from bondage. Mary Magdalene. Released from seven demons. But they don't know what to do with this. They're bewildered. They wonder what's next. And only love and loyalty has kept them nearby. And they're going to do the right thing the best they can in taking care of the body of their dead rabbi. But hope is hard to come by at this point. Let's finish the rest of the chapter. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and the action. And he came from the Judean town of Arimathea. And he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock. One which no one had yet been laid. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. And they rested on the Sabbath in obedience with the commandment. If we had time, I could talk about the shocking courage of a secret disciple. Or I could talk about how these women honored the Sabbath and yet were going to bury Jesus with anointing oils. But the account of Jesus' crucifixion I think again, if we enter into it, it is shocking. And I, and I hope there are some things that have struck you. But the end of Luke 23 leaves us with Jesus in the tomb. <laughs> His disciples just not knowing what to do with themselves. All they can do is do a little mop-up with Jesus' dead body. They're at a place where there's, they feel like there's nothing that they can do. But it sets the stage of what God is about to do. To change all of history and to give us eternal hope. And we'll read about that next week. And my friends, if you know it or you don't know it, it's quite shocking. So, let me pray. And Bobby, will you and the worship team come and close us? Lord Jesus, there's so much to take in here in this scene. First of all, that the, the Messiah, that God in the flesh is nailed to a cross and is mocked and dies for us. And Lord, sometimes we don't know what to do with that except be grateful. Strangely enough to be grateful. Because again, it was your sacrifice that purchased our salvation. So Lord, all the things that we've gone through today, would you 
bring them back to our mind in this week and make us mindful of your love, of your sacrifice, of your great grace, and the great hope that we have in you. You are amazing. And we worship you. Lord Jesus, in your name I pray these things. Amen.